Welcome to this light conversation with me, Pascal Goswami. Insights and inspirations that leave you feeling lighter than when you arrived. A deep breath and bow in appreciation for this special time with dear Satchitanandaji to have this light conversation. So thank you so much for being here with me today. It's an honor for me also. I'm very pleased to, to share with you. It's always a blessing to have what we call in yoga satsang, sharing of truth. Mm. Well, I, I not to dwell on it, but I do want to just briefly reflect with, uh, with our dear listener viewer that, uh, that you are a, a true scholar, um, one of the forefathers, I'd say the godfathers of modern yoga in the Western world, for sure. You've been initiated since 1970. I'll post a link to your Wikipedia page for the people to peruse through. Enough to say that uh, you've opened over 23 centers. You have initiated over 10,000 participants and you are, you've been recognized with the Patanjali Award for Outstanding Service to Yoga by the Worldwide Yoga Council. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I could spend a whole hour just speaking about your accolades. Uh, but let's let's land it there enough to say that it really is a joy that you're here with us and uh, this occasion to tap into all your experiences and uh, and life lessons that you've gathered along the way yeah i think that's important to try to relate to some topics perhaps that may be of interest to our you know, viewers of this eventually there is often a tendency to especially among westerners to um, go for the teacher rather than the teaching yes and uh, this is um we have a culture which is a, what we call individualistic so as individuals we try to distinguish ourselves and in doing so uh there's such things as competition and all kinds of egoistic uh, manifestations. Mm -hmm. So uh, my experience has been that in also related to this is that in India, people were very familiar with many of the philosophical teachings, but you can't get them to do sadhana, to do yogic practices, especially the yogasanas. Whereas in the West, it's practically the opposite. People are totally ignorant. They don't even want to know about the teachings but mostly they're interested in uh, learning new techniques. And, uh, so Isn't that fascinating? Uh, I, I totally resonate. You know, when I grew up in India, there was, there was a lot of bhajans and kirtans and, you know, pujas and so on. Um, but the actual physical practice, I hardly ever saw it. Besides my father who practiced, but it wasn't at all um, well known. Yet you're quite right. In the Western world, we're seeing the flip side when there is... Uh, almost a hyper focus on the physical practice, the asana, you know, as a, as a, almost like a individuated silo, but divorced from the, the deeper perennial wisdom that, that it was born from. Yeah. People, I think, ignore the deep uh, influence that our cultures have on us. And by culture, I mean our values. The word culture comes from the Latin word cult, cult, uh, which means what do you value? What do you worship? And in a material culture, we worship material things, or the temples today are the shopping malls, you know. And in a spiritual culture, the material things are often put aside. And you're right about the Hatha Yoga being relatively unknown um, until recently uh, in India, except among uh, what would be referred to 100, 150 years ago as fakirs, people who were doing sort of uh, gymnastic, sort of a extreme asceticism. Mm. And then uh, people like Yogananda's brother uh, and some of the forefathers of uh, Iyengar uh, started introducing health yoga as uh, modern photography started taking pictures of the body and what it could look like. We started seeing a lot of health magazines and yoga became a kind of a, a means for Indians also to become strong versus the Britishers, and uh, mm. there's been this uh, wonderful book that's been written about the, um, what's called uh, the uh, yoga body, 
the origins of modern postural yoga by David Singleton, okay. which traces its whole history, which basically puts the case that modern yoga, postural yoga, as we know today, is a product of both Swedish gymnastics in the uh, uh, late 19th century, uh, the introduction of it by the YMCA uh, in India, and the adapt adaptation of it by um, Indian freedom fighters who wanted to make uh, people strong and, and proud of their of their Indian culture. So there's this there's a tremendous mixture that took place that was political and cultural uh, involved in what was happening in India 100 and 120 years ago, which is totally ignored. You know? And the luminary, I believe, the master teacher uh, Krishnamacharya ji was also in the forefront of this more athletic form and but Pratabi Joyce and so on, you know, really brought it to the world. Exactly. Um, yeah. You have, maybe we can start at, at if you open to it, because I know of 1970, you graduate from, I think, Georgetown University. H how did that shift happen from academia into, you know, Babaji Kriya Yoga? And then you've literally met some of the greatest minds in this field from George Furstein, the Vishnu Devananda, our own, you know, um, Madan Bali, so many people you met along the way. There's such a rich history to tap into. I'm wondering if you could just speak about the origin story. Well, I think in the late 60s, it was a period of cultural uh, revolution in North America that was sparked by the uh, civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And in Washington, D.C. was the, uh, you might say, the crucible where all this was going on. And it became clear to me uh, after... Uh, being at Georgetown for the first two years, that there was just uh, that the cultural values which were behind, the, the, you might say, the system at that time, the political powers that be, was not something that I could uh, defend as uh, in my chosen career, which was to become a foreign service officer. So I took a year, uh, third year abroad in Fribourg, Switzerland. And while I was there, I had a number of experiences. Uh, I spent two weeks in the home of Salvador Dali. And that was kind of a turning point because he gave me another view of reality, which I had not been aware of. And uh, along with some of the people who were associated with him, the other artists, I um, spent about six months. And it really sort of uh, turned my world inside out in many ways. So when I came back to uh, United States, I had to make a choice, uh, either to stay in Europe or uh, not and be an expatriate because I'd lose my student exemption, or to come back and try to make sense of what I had. Uh, I think a week after I got back from uh, to United States, I met uh, a boyfriend of my sister in Los Angeles, and he took me to Yogananda's self-realization uh, lake shrine in Los Angeles. It was near where I lived. And I read the autobiography of Yogi, and I was so impressed. It seemed to answer all the existential questions I'd been having in the last year. And I applied to become a monk in the, in the monastery. And they said, you have to wait a year. So I went back and finished my last year at Georgetown. And a few months later, uh, December of that year, I saw a little advertisement for Yogi Ramaya. Actually, it was just an announcement saying Kriya Yoga class, free classes uh, near DuPont Circle. It was in a free uh, newspaper. So I went there and uh, I learned that Yogi Ramaya was coming down once a month on the Greyhound bus from New York City, where he had uh, been for two years, uh, and giving a class. So I attended his class, and then the next one and the next one, and I was so impressed with him. And I decided it would be uh, much more worthwhile for me to learn with a living master uh, than with uh, Yogananda's organization. So that's how I sort of made that transition. Mm. And during that period, uh, there were more than uh, 60 or 70 uh, renunciant teachers, swamis and Buddhist monks who were in New York City. These were all pretty advanced uh, teachers. There was a whole influx, particularly in New York City and in Los Angeles and San Francisco in the late 60s. And uh, at one point, we decided to 
this was a year, uh, two years after uh, Woodstock, which was in 68, 1970, we decided to, there was a committee that was formed in Los Angeles among a group of us to have a kumbabela on a farm in, in Oregon. And this is where I met uh, at this meeting. I met Swami Vishnadevananda, and uh, I'd also met uh, Yogi Bhajan and his representative. And I was delegated as representative of my teacher. We tried to organize a kumbh mela. Uh, Fascinating, a Western kumbh mela. Yeah, it it of course failed because of the uh, under the weight of the logistics. But it was a uh, the plan was to bring six jumbo jets full of sadhus from India uh, to this uh, event. But anyway, so this was a time when people were imagining, you might say. Uh, cultural transformation and change, which um, of course lasted maybe a decade or two. And during that, you know, during the seventies until the early eighties, one by one, a number of the teachers sort of met um, karmically perhaps, they, they, they lost their reputation and the word guru became not a, not a respected term. So there was a kind of gradual decline and. I, I suppose many people got married and started starting careers, you know, and so yoga sort of went into a period in the, uh, in the late 80s where it was much in decline until the 1990s where it sort of was reborn with, uh, you know, its emphasis and adaptation to the stress and uh, the uh, needs of modern, modern America, modern materialistic America. So my own teacher, uh, he only wanted a few students, and uh, what he asked, he would initiate almost anyone who was really sincerely interested. But then, in order to get further training with him, you had to make some commitments. And uh, so, the commitment I made to him was to live in his his centers and ashrams, which uh, were in. Uh, he would post me in different places, including India, Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles, and. Um, in each of these places, our requirement was that we practice yoga eight hours a day. We have a job, work for eight hours a day, and then the rest of the time was our own for rest or meals or shopping or whatever we needed to do to maintain ourselves. So this is something I did for 18 years. And uh, of course, there were only a handful of us who did this. I think he never had more than about 15 um, people in his centers doing this kind of uh, discipline. But uh, and even before you were allowed to live like that, you had to sh show that you could do it on your own. So that was what I did in the first year before he allowed me to move into a new center that he started in Los Angeles in 1970. And then uh, 1971, he sent me to Chicago. Where I started a center there. And then he sent me to India, 1972. And then he sent me back from India to Washington, D.C., where I lived for four years. And then in 1977, he sent me to Montreal, Canada, where uh, I lived for 11 years until we decided to uh, start a center here in Eastern Townships, about an hour uh, from Montreal. So it's been a, sort of a continuous uh, uh, progression from, from those early days. And uh, when, oh when I, yeah, the center in Montreal, we were the third center, the Shivananda. Mm -hmm. uh, Ashram on, on Saint Laurent was there. The integral yoga uh, was there on Park Integral Avenue. yoga. This is uh, this is Sachidananda or Aurobindo. Uh, Swami Sachidananda. Sachidananda, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, yes, there was the Aurobindo uh, Center, which was not an ashram, not a well. It's a center, the bookstore and and a, a temple to Aurobindo. Mm -hmm. So all of these have survived, and uh, these are like pillars. Uh, how? Why Montreal? Well, I, uh, personally, I think that Quebec has a unique uh, spiritual culture, which goes back 400 years. Uh, I came across a list. I was looking for a particular city on a list of cities in Montreal, in, in Quebec. There's like hundreds of villages named after this saint or that saint. And until 100 years ago, um, the Catholic, even till the 1960s, the Catholic Church and religious culture of Quebec dominated people's lives. Of course, then there was a quiet revolution in nineteen late late sixties, early seventies, where the Catholic Church uh, lost its uh, control of the schools and hospitals and uh, its political power. 
and there would create a kind of a vacuum. So for the next 20 years, Quebec was sort of like the California of, uh, of Canada. Uh, and you find people were very, very open to uh, experimentation, uh, and particularly with regards to spirituality, because everybody has a soul. And uh, your soul is calling, you know, it has certain needs and is trying to speak to you. So people were, you know, were very, uh, very open to this. And a lot of, a lot of the spiritual teachers came. And uh, of course, because of the language legislation, um, not many, not so many came uh, as in, as in America because uh, they had to know French for a large part. And uh, so it was sort of off this, was off the circuit, you might say, uh, for many of the teachers, you know. There is uh, so many places. I could spend an hour with you just speaking about your time with uh, Salvador Dali. I mean, that's just in the beginning. Uh, there, there, there's pockets yeah. of uh, this deep uh, richness in so much you've shared. I'd like to go into that, that, that part of you spending eight hours a day practicing yoga for 18 years. What does that even look like? What, what, what kind of experience was that for you? Well, we had a schedule, uh, 3 to 6 a.m., 12 to 1, 3 to 4, and uh, 6 to 8, 11.45 to 12.45. If we had to be at the office or working during this period, uh, we would have to make up either in the morning or in the evening or the afternoon. So the requirement was to do at least 56 hours per week. And this usually included a, a, a day of silence and fasting, usually Sunday, day when we were not working. And it also included, um, we were encouraged to do what's called tapas, which is an intensive practice for 24 hours where you don't stop. And it involves, a, Babaji's Kriya Yoga is a five-fold path. So uh, first part of it is the asana for the physical body primarily, the pranayama for the vital body, uh, meditation for the mental body, mantras for the intellectual body primarily and bhakti yoga mm. so these are all these five bodies of course are common to the yogic teachings and uh, this it is uh, uh yoga is a distillation of siddhanta which is the south indian uh, tradition and babaji basically uh, created a, a synthesis of classical yoga what I call Coca-Cola yoga, potentially is Raja yoga, and the tantric uh, Kundalini yoga, which the Siddhas highly extolled and, and wrote about. Uh, their main practice was the use of Kundalini yoga because they felt that as Tantra teaches, consciousness follows energy and energy follows consciousness. So for example, when you oh, direct- sorry to interrupt you. Could you please repeat what you just said there? Consciousness follows energy, and energy follows consciousness. This is this is the basis of tantra, and tantra is that body of teachings which we find in India, China, and Tibet, which it literally means a web, and it's that web which connects the material life with the spiritual life or the spiritual world, and it's a huge body of knowledge which was developed uh, by experimentation during the first. Uh, millennia of our common era from around 1,000, you know, for the first thousand years and in all three of these countries. And what they found was that uh, towards the end of it, of course, Hatha Yoga developed as, as part of Tantra. They found that when you concentrate your uh, energy, whether it's, at, for example, through your breath or through your uh, mantras, for example, or just um, the turning of your eyes in a certain place, the consciousness follows it, right? And you can actually bring about a, what they call transformation. So uh, unlike most spiritual traditions where the goal is basically to get out of the world, to go to heaven or to, to see the world as illusionary, the Siddha's perspective on the world was that it's all divine. Everything is an emanation of the divine which they refer to as Shiva. And that he, this divine being is actually creating through us, preserving things through us, for example, creating thoughts, creating emotions, creating sensual experiences, preserving certain memories, 
certain uh, habits, certain relationships. It also dissolves. You know, we we learn new things and we replace them. We get new understandings. We dissolve relationships. It also creates through us obscurity, which is the fifth function, which is doubt, confusion, fear, right? And finally, grace, which is the fifth function. And grace is, unlike karma, the response of the divine being to one's call to or one's seeking. So, for example, if you are uh, confused about something, you're fearful, and you start praying to the divine, or you just find a moment of silence, and you go, go, go out in nature, and suddenly you get a flash into your mind, and you get an understanding. This is a grace, right? You get a, you get a clear view, right? And you can call it your, your inner heart, or you can call it the guru, or you can call it your Aurobindo called the psychic being, right? So you have this, this divine being within you, which is trying to guide you. But because he loves you, like a mother loves a child, it allows you to make mistakes and to learn from your mistakes. But when you turn to that inner being, then he, it's there ready to, to guide you. And he's trying to, sometimes to speak uh, also to you in spite of your, uh, you might say that the, your mind has, is very, um, talks very loud through its habits and your soul speaks very softly and you have to, you have to really be quiet to, to hear it, you know. So much of what we do in yoga is, of course, is to try to quiet not only the mind, but especially the vital body, the seat of the emotions and the desires, because this is, you know, Basically, it interpenetrates our mind uh, and our physical body, and our, even our intellect. You know, we can use the intellect just to rationalize uh, emotional um, uh, feelings that we have of resentment or anger or fear. Right? Mm -hmm. Like a kind so of mother. Yeah, we can trick ourselves into justifying uh, mean-spiritedness and so on. Mm. That's right. So, what I'm trying to say is that the the, the citizens objective is to transform our human nature, not to simply accept it, not to simply try to see the world and the body as a place of suffering and a place to get to get away from in some heaven or in some liberation, um, but actually to bring about a, the, you might say, the realization of our full potential as, as, human, as human divine beings. So the citizens like Babaji are uh, examples of those who have done this. So is Ramalinga. Ramalinga was probably the most recent uh, siddha to have achieved, to have attained the state of even physical immortality. And uh, we've just published a new book about him uh, in French. It's an ebook. It's on our French pages of our website. Mm. Please, please so post he was, the link. I'd be grateful if you, uh, let me know, and I'll post the link in the, in the description. Yeah. Yeah. So, if I may summarize, uh, <laughs> to the best of my ability, we have the five pillars, asana, pranayam, uh, there's dhyana, mantra, and bhakti. And the intention of these five pillars is to facilitate this transformation into our full potential and to tap into this soul voice that speaks quietly. Uh, if you tone down the, the loud voice, you get access to something I would say, which is transpersonal, non-localized. Uh, how would you describe that voice? Well, you can call it the voice of your soul. Mm -hmm. The, um, you know, in, in the Advaita tradition of uh, India, they speak about the Atman, which is a sort of part of you that is a passive witness. Okay? And this is the voice of that passive witness. And it's something that Aurobindo has described as the psychic being. And uh, you have moments in your life, for example, you're looking at a sunset and you just have this wonderful feeling that comes up as you look at the sunset and you, and you just sort of like have this, this spiritual kind of awakening, you know, or this is the psychic being talking to you. Or you look at the, the Japanese call it Satori or Kensho, this glitch experience. Yeah. It, it doesn't even have to be something as great as that. It can uh -huh. be just it can be just something like you get a, a, 
and advice like don't do that or be patient or wait. And it's not coming just from memory. It's often something that's, well, it's coming from beyond your, you might say, ordinary round of thinking. Oh. Right? When you allow yourself to just sort of be. Let me just, if I take this moment to reflect on an experience from this morning, because I had a decision to make and I went for a, a run in, my, in the forest just behind our house. And after a while, I just started to walk. And exactly like you said, this other very non-emotional, almost like an objective observer voice just clearly gave me the answer. And uh, it, it did not, you know, it, it's, it was like, like my eyes are seeing lights and colors and shapes. It's my mind was perceiving this voice. So there was no sense of ownership to it. Yes. And it was so clear and so on point and so succinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a voice of truth. It's a voice of love. It's a voice of, of guidance. It's a voice of um, realization. And uh, some people refer to it as the inner guru also. Uh, there's different ways of thinking about it. but. So let's take a moment to look at how these five pillars, these five practices, uh, facilitate that you know the physical practice the the, the breathing practice uh, right. the the meditation practice the you know the vibrational practice of mantras and also the devotional practice how, how does is the sole purpose of all of this to give you access to that soulful voice initially mm -hmm. initially um what we are seeking in the field of yoga is referred to as samadhi or self-realization, which occurs in the spiritual dimension of our being. When the, when the mind becomes absolutely silent, right? And the breathing can stop, mind stops. You're in a state of profound um, awareness of awareness itself. And you realize that consciousness is everywhere it's universal and that I am that and that I am. Okay? And this is so fulfilling that in most uh, cases, the individual who experiences it, and it might be from whatever religious or spiritual background, and they refer to it in different ways, like you mentioned Satori in Japanese. Um, the Christian might refer to it as the light of Christ. Um, there is this kind of a rapture, but it's not something which involves the emotions. It's a complete silence. This is so satisfying that when you come out of it, you're, you're sort of returned to the, to the world of your own neuro neuroses. And of course, the physical bodies having to deal with uh, hot weather and bills to pay and everything else that, you know, distracts us. That most people who are seeking seeking this seek to have it again and they want to avoid distractions so they try to isolate themselves either in a monastery or out in the mountains or so there's a there's a kind of a divorce between the material and the spiritual right and it's almost a schizophrenia mm. we we know what we want we, we have this deep aspiration for that okay which transcends all division but yet our own Human nature is not evolved, and it has a lot of resistance. Right? As one deepens, however, what we refer to in yoga, Babhishkri Yoga, as surrender. Surrender the perspective of the ego, that I'm the body, I'm the mind, I'm, the, I'm my emotions, I'm my little life story, I'm all the things I want to do. As we surrender more and more of that, we become a sage, in which the intellect is able to uh, know truth by identity it can actually speak on many different subjects simply by concentrating on the topic and inspiration comes this is what we refer to as someone who who's a sage right they have surrendered at the level of the intellect right mm -hmm. and they start communicating it through talks or through books uh, because they're very, they have that facility they have that inspiration as the surrender deepens into the mental plane, they may start to manifest greater human potential, which we call cities or yogic miraculous powers. And there are 65 of them 
written about in the Yoga Sutras in the mm -hmm. third pada, third chapter. For example, clairvoyance, clairaudience, uh, levitation, uh, materialization. And as a surrendered, these things, of course, are not encouraged because they can also become a distraction, just like becoming reinforced duality. Yeah. Yeah. Even by, you know, even a sage could become so full of his knowledge that he gets distracted by that. Right. And it's sort of like trying to describe the wonderful meal you had in Maxime's restaurant in Paris and never really going back to the restaurant. Right. So, Typically, sages don't even, don't even want to talk about it because it's so limiting to put, try to put things into words. This is and then, when, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when the surrender becomes even deeper into the vital body, then you start to manifest even more greater uh, powers of uh, materialization. For example, so for example, you have uh, these things, healings and. Uh, uh, being in two places at once, you know, we can. Yes, you know, yes. I'll take right for Yogi. That book goes into that. Uh, some of these cities. Yes. Mm -hmm. Neem Karli Baba, you know, he manifested mm -hmm. these things. And um, of course, the danger always there is the powers can become an end in themselves. So um, finally, the surrender occurs in the physical cells of the body. And it, they give up their need merely to be comfortable, to eat, and to sleep and they become infused with this supreme consciousness. And this is what we find in the case of Babaji and the 18th Siddhas. Each of them surrendered even at the physical level. And in the case of Ramalinga, um, at the end of his, I might say in 1878, when he, we lost sight of him, he complained to his disciples, you people, I've been trying to teach you these things all these years, and you haven't been listening to me, so I'm going into my room, and you won't see me again, right? And uh, that's what happened. They locked up the room, and when they opened it again, he had disappeared. But he left uh, this book we talk about. He promised to come back in 100 and 150 years, which will be um, 2023. And I have, I have a student who actually went to this place in South India where he lived, uh, where he disappeared from his home. And uh, the caretaker there uh, was trying to answer the questions of these scientists who were with him, who were from France, who were asking all these questions about Ramalinga. He said, he prayed to Ramalinga to help him and suddenly Ramalinga appeared and he answered their questions. So he didn't leave the physical, he, he became invisible, let's put it that way. The Siddhas, or like Babaji, are choose to, to be not public figures, according to their, because they, their work is is much more effective mm -hmm. when the teaching becomes important and not their person. These people are lazy, right? They're looking for someone to do it for them rather than to apply themselves to the work. I'm hoping it'll be through osmosis just by, you know, <laughs> praying yeah. and get it, yeah. yeah. So for yeah. example, auto, autobiography, Yogi, he tells all these stories, which are very attractive, but as my friend David Frawley often says, this book and Ramakrishna's book have done so much damage because people, they Craving. think the path is going to be easy. It's just a question of finding the right teacher who will touch you on the forehead and then you'll be, you'll, you'll be enlightened. Mm. And of course, people, you know, they learn a the technique, they start to practice and all their in own resistance comes up, all their own bad habits comes up and they feel, oh, there's something wrong with the teacher. I have to find another teacher. Let's and look at a little bit. Let's, yeah. let's put a microscope on that. Uh, so what I understand from the Yoga Sutras, I find it to be like a, like a modern day white paper, like a thesis. You know, there is a hypothesis, you know, uh, yeah. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha, and then it goes on to give you the Artanga, the eight limbs of how to do the experiment. Then the third chapter gives you all the results, the cities, but it says, you know, go right past it. Don't get distracted. It's just what happens. And then it yeah. gives you a conclusion in the end and a summary as well. It's, 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 so, it's so clear and succinct and, uh, you know, scientifically yeah. brilliant in that way. Yeah. I want to take a moment to reflect on what, what do you feel is the biggest obstacle right now? I won't say in the Western mind. I'll say in the modern mind because we all have the same Western mind, now, more or less. Yeah. What's the biggest obstacle in the Western mind? A modern mind. 
to accessing these uh, the, the deeper truths. We haven't made our, our we haven't made as our priority in life the realization of our divine potential, mm. which includes self-realization. So a few years ago, I wrote a book called Enlightenment. It's not what you think. And one of the people who endorsed the book, David Frawley, he's a friend from... Oh, he's amazing. I'm a big fan, big fan. Yeah. yeah. He, he actually lived with Yogi Ramaya when I was in my first year in India. But he, he said, nobody's interested in enlightenment today. So the book has sold a few hundred copies, right? But um, it's true. You know, it's not a priority for people because people have a lot of other things that they, they have desires. So now, is this a problem? Not in the sense that if you see the world as a perfect school with different classrooms, that everything is perfectly arranged for the seeker to get over their own uh, desires, their own needs, and to learn the lessons from those experiences, to learn the experience of suffering, right? So it's not until usually you're suffering that you start to ask existential questions. Why am I suffering? You know, why am I here? Is there, is there a God? Do I have a soul? Who am I, right? So it's not until you begin to ask those questions and unfortunately, I would say that, in, as you say, in the modern mindset, we don't ask those questions because we are culturally, uh, you might say, uh, encouraged to seek material things, right? And to seek a, a kind of different lifestyle that it, it involves consuming, being an individual, consuming, uh, perhaps even being political. So there is this, um, and of course there can be, you know, the argument of people who are, you might say activists, is that, well, spiritual people, they don't, they don't give a damn about the world, right? And this is, the, this is the case for most spiritual traditions. They, if you, if you ask a, a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew what their goal is, it's to go to heaven. And if you ask a Buddhist or a Hindu what their goal is, it's to have liberation from the cycle of birth and rebirth. So do they have something in common? Yes. It's to get out of this place, right? It's sort of like uh, they, they, their goal is sort of like to make, go into the world, like check into a hotel room, make a mess, and then leave it for the next generation, leave it for the maid to clean up. So, yes, we learn from this. But as a, the mess is so great now in terms of, you know, the climate and, and what's happening, I don't know if there's going to be uh, a world that's going to survive, you know, that'll be in the sense that, you know, we could wipe out most of humanity in the next uh, few, few decades, you know, if we don't do something about uh, global warming, for example, and... Uh, Yes, the catastrophes yeah. looming are, are, are several. You mentioned yeah. this, this need, uh, maybe need is stronger word, uh, of uh, some kind of suffering. Uh, do you mean it as a prerequisite, or is it just the more normal way people enter into these more perennial questions and explorations? What's the role of suffering in uh, our uh, prioritizing enlightenment? Because suffering is going to happen <laughs> the way the world is unfolding. Oh all of the Eastern traditions that I'm aware of, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, the various branches, the primary problem that they are addressing is suffering. And they each have their own, their own prescriptions for, for it. The, um, the in terms of Christianity, of course, they have another approach. It's yes, I'm suffering, but Jesus suffered for me on the cross. I believe in him. And as my savior, therefore my sins are forgiven and I'll go to heaven. So it's a kind of different formula. Um, but fundamentally, I think people were attracted to Christianity uh, out, of out of suffering also. Mm. At least they're seeking, you know, they're seeking a, 
a way of overcoming their their bad habits or their uh, sometimes they're indoctrinated in it and then that also becomes a form of uh, seeking you know mm. so I, I know i entered into the practice because i had tremendous back pain so i was seeking a solution for my back yeah. pain. Uh, so yeah. suffering got me into this path uh, it, it's almost like saying that uh, we're not prioritizing enlightenment because there's not enough suffering which is a uh, unfortunate way to frame it. Um. Yeah. No, I think uh, you have hit on you've hit upon the right way of considering it. People, yoga. The word yoga is a homograph, a word that has means different things today. And essentially, in the West, it has been adapted to our Western culture because of the, all the stress that we have, because of the fast-paced uh, modern life and all the illness that that has created. People uh, have found that yoga helps them not only to overcome physical ailments, but also to prevent them. So uh, there's been a, you know, I think a couple of years ago, people were spending more money on alternatives like yoga and uh, acupuncture and alternative medicine than they were on allopathy because of, because it works, you know. So this is primarily how people are approaching yoga. And it's only uh, after some time as people relax, you might say, learn to Take care of the physical body, keep it healthy, start to feel good, get over their health problems. Then they become aware of something deeper within. Energy, and, their mind, their emotions, maybe at the next level. Hmm. That's right. And then they become interested in meditation. And perhaps at that point, they start asking the deeper questions. It's usually a, a progression like that. you know. So if I was to grant you with my godlike powers, a magic wand <laughs> that could change how yoga is perceived and practiced in this modern world. Um, would you be, what would your wish be? Uh, how, how could it be reframed to be, I guess, more valuable and uh, better utilized in that sense? Well, it, it, it's not that I would want to be in, in that position because I think uh, there are already a number of siddhas like Babaji who are in that position. Mm. Right? And uh, if you might have read the book Be Here Now by uh, Baba Ram Das, you oh, know. Classic, I love it, yeah. He had, he, had a, he had a moment where he realized that his teacher had these powers and yet he allowed things to be as they are because, as I said earlier, it's the all the things happening in the world today individually and collectively it's our own yoga mat it's our own place of practice it's where we all have a responsibility and an opportunity to work on ourselves so this whole thing is a yoga mat <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's it. a place it's where we do our sadhana so uh, we don't divorce our spiritual life from our like for example you're the father with with three children your children are your your place of your sadhana now where you have to cultivate compassion and you have to uh, cultivate your intellect to be able to communicate to them effectively and you have to be an example for them right and you have to work on, you know, put aside your own egoism in many cases so there's so many challenges you know the, the, the yoga of being a parent you know? oh my gosh yes indeed very humbling <laughs> very humbling challenges uh, i yeah. love this notion that the whole world is uh, your life is a yoga mat did you ever have a chance to meet uh, Baba Ramdas? Did that ever happen for you? Yeah, he came to Montreal uh, twice. Uh, the first time, um, I think I'm coming once in Montreal, he, on um, St. Catherine Street um, near um, Barry. There is a church there, an Anglican church. He gave a lecture there once and I spoke with him afterwards. And um, also I saw him at the Unitarian Church on uh, 16th Street in Washington, D.C., around 1974. Yeah. So I haven't had uh, much contact with him, but I, I admired his books, you know. Yes, uh, beautiful soul, one of my favorites, absolutely. Yeah, he was, of course, instrumental in helping many people uh, move from uh, their interest in psychedelics mm -hmm. to, to yoga during that period. You know, mm -hmm. Timothy Leary sort of, promoted psychedelics and he collaborated with Richard Halpert and Abraham Das, but they, they parted ways and he decided that he, after meeting his, his teacher, uh, Neem Crowley Baba, that he of course wanted to uh, 
help people to appreciate the, that approach. You know. Here we are. And uh, from this perspective, nobody has a crystal ball. Nevertheless, I'm wondering what sense you have about the future of humankind and where we're heading into and what role Babaji's Kriya Yoga might play in this. Well, we, I'll, I'll start with the first question. In Babaji's Kriya Yoga, he is taught through a network of teachers who teach according to a standard and uh, they belong to a lay order, which uh, I founded in 1997. And um, one of the unique things about it is that all of them have their own means of support. So they don't have any, they have employment, they have jobs or they you know, have businesses. So they're teaching not as professional teachers or as a way of making money, but as a way of simply expressing and sharing their love and knowledge and experience of yoga with others. So- Karma yogis, essentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was inspired by the, the orders of Tibet and the Hindu orders that which are found in some of the monasteries in South India, particularly, which have been around for more than a thousand years, Christian orders also. I live about 20 miles from Benedictine monastery, which was, you know, goes back to the fifth century, St. Benedict. So an order, of course, is a group of individuals, usually a very small number, who have dedicated their lives to a practice, a sadhana, and uh, in most cases, they are renunciants, and the um, you might say the, the monastery or the, the order they belong to takes care of their physical needs so they can concentrate on their, their spiritual practices. And um, in our case, we just I was inspired to have the individuals take care of their own needs so there would be no conflict of interest, potential conflict of interest between their own needs for support and the needs of their students. So we never allow money to be an obstacle and we offer the training. We have a suggested contribution depending upon the costs involved, you know, and the average number of people who come. So that's one of the, so we're, we're very small, you might say, uh, organization of teachers, right? We have no organization of students and we're an educational, not a, not a religious charity, we're an educational charity. We're registered here in Canada, the US, in India, and in Sri Lanka. And uh, so our teachers are in about 20 countries now. And um, these are people that I trained over the last uh, 30 years. And uh, so they're making their contribution to people who are attracted to um, the teachings of this tradition. And uh, they, people, most people discover us through uh, looking for Kriya Yoga or looking for Babaji on the internet, or they find one of our publications. I, I published uh, in about 10 languages. We have a publishing, this, the ashram here in Quebec is supported by its publications. And uh, our website's in 20 languages, and some of our publications in Turkish and Arabic and Bulgarian and uh, incredible you know, are, are in um, ebooks you know we make it available for, for people in many of this Indian languages so we try to make we try to approach people through publications and then if they're interested they come for initiation seminars uh, we have a correspondence course so we're making our own contribution like many many groups there's no interest on our part of being number one or being better or we're just doing our own thing and we don't expect anyone we invite people to come and practice try the things like you said like a hypothesis mm -hmm. see if it works for you give it a good shake you know try it for at least a year and then you know you're free to experiment and learn other things also but it's such a, uh, the techniques are so uh, you might say uh, vast that uh, they you don't have to change your 
your mode of dress. You don't have to change your belief system. You don't have to change, restrict yourself from doing something else. We do encourage you, you know, to be vegetarian. We do encourage you to practice a certain amount each morning and each evening. And if you want to learn more, then we have three levels of training. We also have a training of Kriyatha Yoga teacher tra teachers. But our acharyas are only come into the order only on invitation basis. And it's usually after observing them over many years uh, to see if they have all the qualities that, that would make a, an effective teacher. Yoga, I find in the world right now, is like a typical human mind. There's a lot of things screaming and shouting, but the real stuff is soulful and silent. <laughs> and yeah. I feel this is where you're speaking from. So dear viewer, listener, if you already have a practice or even a certificate, take a chance to check out Kriya Yoga from Babaji. Yeah. It could only complement and benefit. Yes. And it is, it is silent and, and very, very profound. Um, yes. I wanted to ask you this question, which I love asking because it came to me spontaneously one time when I was with another master teacher. So it's a imagination question. So hypothetically, and heavens forbid, you know, you are, you are in your last, last few breaths, you know, uh, this story is about the past someone very near and dear to you right beside you and um, and you just have a few breaths left to share uh, perhaps the most profound helpful thing you can share what would you say to this person the person who has only a few breaths well you are you have a few breaths left the person is just there for your guidance so what is the, the your parting word what would be your parting words of wisdom heavens forbid if you were in that position Oh, I think it would simply be to uh, concentrate on the sound of Om, ask them to remind me to, to concentrate on Om, and to remind me to turn my eyes up to the, the crown, in case I had forgotten to do that, so I can make a conscious exit from the crown. This is called Mahasamadhi. So uh, that's all I would need, is just uh, because in your last uh, the, the, the last minutes and hours of your life are actually the most important because they determine what's going to happen during the minutes and hours and days after your your passing it's only the physical that stops immediately the other bodies continue depending on how much energy they have in them and depending on their desires their needs their you know memories they bring new experiences afterwards and even bring you back into this world at some point. So you can bypass the astral plane. You can bypass uh, even coming back here uh, unless you're like myself called to come back or inspired to come back to finish this transformation by uh, simply concentrating at the crown of the head, turning your eyes upwards, breathing deeply and out you go. So this is called the Mahasamadhi. And, uh, Leaving on the in-breath. Um, your attention well, in the sasara. I mean, first, what you want to do is lead during the, the space between the breaths. So when the breath is suspended. Kumbhaka. Yeah. No holding it, just effortless suspension, because when the breath stops, the mind stops, and then you're able to, to transcend everything. So wow. that's the first time that anyone asked me that question in that way, but yeah, this is what we teach in first initiation is uh, as a, you might say a bonus as mm. to how to what to do at the end of your life as the saying goes the art of uh, living is actually the art of dying you know so you 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 want to live in a way when the, the the dying the last few chapters the last few sentences the last few words are skillful yeah well it's you know, also good to remember what Ramana Maharshi said when he was dying, people were crying and he said, you silly people, where could I go? Because <laughs> if you're identified with that, which is permanent, mm -hmm. the, one, the part of you that has never changed, it's the one constant of your life, it doesn't depart, it remains. And this is, this is wisdom. I find this is very helpful to remember for all of us who have experienced uh, friends, family members, just people who have passed away. To I find it's it's there's something profoundly healing about realizing that 
that which is essentially this person. Um, as the Gita says, uh, fire cannot burn it, water cannot wet it, knife cannot cut it, wind cannot blow it. So yeah. the, essentially, the essential being hasn't gone anywhere. The sinners would say, Arnbushivam, love is God. Many saints have said God is love, but only the sinners said, love is God. So that would be the other word perhaps you could simply love say it just love is god love is god yeah. so when we are in love we are god <laughs> yeah and that's what that's our purpose here is is to manifest love in everything we do oh maybe we can end on a on a on a gift to our right. to whoever was with us this whole time is there a short practice perhaps that you could share that might allow us to touch upon uh, a, a different state of awareness. Would you have a short practice? Maybe two minutes. Yeah. Before? Yeah. Okay. So one could simply begin to follow the breath, just to observe it, and uh, to notice that as you're observing the breath, some thoughts may come up. Some physical sensations, maybe felt, some emotions. And then to begin to notice that all these things are appearing and disappearing in the field of light. Sort of like what appears and disappears on a movie screen. And as you follow the breath, mentally repeat, I am that. We call this hum, H-A-M in Sanskrit. During the inhalation and sa, that during exhalation and just to follow the breath and as you notice the breathing slowing down you'll notice that the thoughts are also becoming less frequent and as you're concentrating on this space in which Thoughts, words, sensations arise. Look deeply into it and see that it's really a field of light. Millions of particles of light moving everywhere within you, outside you, through you, below you, above you. And there's space between the particles of light. Now, if I ask you, who are you, what would you say? It's no longer adequate to simply refer to your name, which is like a wave on the surface of this ocean of being, which these light particles are moving. Now, like the saints, you can say, I am that. That in which everything appears and everything disappears. There's no doubt about it. Even my doubts appear and disappear in that. I am that. Hum, sa. As you continue just to follow the breath, when you notice an inhalation, Mentally say hum, then remember I am. And when you notice an exhalation, mentally say sa, remembering that. Until the breath becomes still, and then simply be still and know that I am God, as David said in the Psalms. Be still and know that I am God. I 
I have this um, meditation at the end of the uh, introductory lecture on, on my website. If you look at the website and under the calendar page, you'll see that there's a recorded introductory lecture. At the end of it, I have this, this guided meditation. Thank you. It's been, Thank you, it's been a joy to share with you. It's the first time I'm doing this. I think uh, I generally avoid Zoom. Uh, I find it difficult to talk to a screen without feedback, but when there's someone there, then it's, it makes it so much easier. Well, on behalf of everybody who had a chance to experience this, thank you. So, dear friend, if this conversation lightened you up in some way and you feel moved to do so, please comment, like, and share. Above all, let's keep lightening each other up. Until next time.